0: Thanks for tuning in to this anniversary series episode of Movie Geeks United. In this episode, we celebrate the 35th anniversary of director Phil Kaufman's American epic, The Right Stuff. The interviews you're about to hear were conducted by Aaron Diaz from our sibling podcast, Back by Midnight, in 2008, and include actor Donald Moffat, who sadly passed away earlier this month, actress Veronica Cartwright, Oscar-winning editor Tom Rolf, who passed away in 2014, and composer Bill Conti.
1: On October 14, 1947, Captain Charles Yeager shattered the sound barrier, propelled man into the future, and the search began for a new breed of men, men who were fearless. You've heard about our project. Sounds dangerous. It's very
2: dangerous.
1: Count me in. I got a rocket in my pocket
3: and a roll in
2: my
1: wall. Ambitious. Who's the best pilot you ever saw?
4: You're looking at it, baby. Patriotic beyond question.
5: I just thank God I live in a country where the best and the finest in a man can be brought out.
3: My pleasure to introduce to you (laughs) America's Mercury (laughs) astronauts.
0: On October 21, 1983, Philip Kaufman's mid budget Hollywood studio sanctioned adaptation of Tom Wolfe's landmark space race chronicle, The Right Stuff, was released. It was an epic, a docudrama about a recent and crucial period of American history. The Right Stuff was also a satire, a myth smashing deconstruction of heroism, image, and an American male archetype that was increasingly becoming outdated. Critics praised it as a new American classic. Audiences that saw it knew it was something different, something special. It made money, but not as much as those who loved it thought it should have. Seen today, the right stuff can be appreciated for what it is, a chronicle of a transitional period in America. It pinpoints the moment when technology and the media would reshape what we thought constitutes heroism and personal achievement. Our first guest has been an actor for nearly 50 years. Born in Plymouth, Devon, England, Donald Moffat has specialized in portraying distinctly American male archetypes. Studying acting at London's Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, he made his stage debut at the legendary Old Vic Theater in Shakespeare's Macbeth at the age of 24. In 1967, he received double Best Actor Tony Award nominations in in revivals of Pirandello's Right You Are If You Think You Are and Ibsen's The Wild Duck, along with his numerous stage performances, which include his Obie-winning performance in Painting churches, he has over a hundred TV and movie credits. His TV work includes appearances on such shows as The Defenders, The Six Million Dollar Man, Logan's Run, Dallas, The West Wing, Law and Order, Trial by Jury, and TV movies like The Devil and Miss Sarah, The Call of the Wild, Waiting for Godot, Teamster Boss, and 61. His film credits include memorable roles in The Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid, Earthquake, Health, Popeye, John Carpenter's The Thing, The Best of Times, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Music Box, The Bonfire of the Vanities, Class Action, House Sitter, Clear and Present Danger, and Cookie's Fortune. In The Right Stuff, Moffat portrays Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson as the short-fewed, ambitious politician of our memories. The genius of the performance is the satirical spin Moffat gives the role that undercuts the larger-than-life aspect and brings LBJ back down to earth. Joining us to discuss his part in one of the most original American epics of the last 25 years, it is my pleasure to welcome veteran actor Donald Moffat. Yes, how, you How you nice
4: to... to hear your voice and uh, right. to be talking to you.
0: <laughs> How are things going?
4: They're going pretty well, thank you.
0: That's great. I guess my my first question will be: Is what uh, what drew you to acting in the beginning?
4: Uh, peer acceptance. <laughs> I was a, a pathologically shy as a as a child and. Uh, first thing that really got me peer acceptance was a performance of Marley's Ghost in the <laughs> under a sheet and that went over pretty big and i knew that was something i could do
6: mm-hmm.
4: and uh, one thing led to another and eventually it was something that i just had to do
0: and uh, what what was your what were your experiences like at the the, the London Royal Academy of Dramatic art you, you attended this i guess in the uh the late 40s early 50s uh right? 52 to 54 yeah
4: mm-hmm. i had, at that time everybody in, in britain went into national service for a couple of years mm-hmm. and so i was 21 when i uh, got out of the army and at that time it was uh, i was clear i i wanted to uh, to act so i went there in an audition and got a, a scholarship which paid my way and um it was very good uh, um, in two ways. It, it was a wonderful conservatory. It had first-class people teaching voice and uh, ballet and movement and uh, all those basic kind of things. And then they were thrown into um, <clears throat> productions two, two a year, uh, done by actual working uh, professionals in the, in the theater. So they already met... Uh, a, a different approaches to the... the there was no uh, ideology involved. It was a very practical kind of education there. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, t- tell me uh, briefly, because, I mean, it's such a legendary theater. I mean, what's it like to be in your early 20s performing at the Old Vic in Macbeth, oh. no less? Uh,
4: yeah, well, that was also... Uh, at the the very first performance of that in the uh, Scottish tragedy, as it's called, you mustn't say the word Macbeth, it's very bad luck,
6: mm-hmm. um,
4: was at the Edinburgh Festival, in the, done in the, um, assembly hall of the Church of Scotland, sort of, off, you know, the, the, uh, they use all kinds of venues there, and it was done in the round, and with a, a wonderful, wonderful actor, Paul Rogers, playing Macbeth, and, it uh, was a very, um, oh, gutsy, uh, broad kind of thing, but produced, uh, I I played the first murderer, Mm. and uh, I killed um, the the young uh, um, Duncan Fry with a a knife, and blood spurted forth, and people fainted in the audience. It was uh, pretty pleasing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you're just joining us, we're talking to veteran actor Donald Moffat about many things, but on the occasion... Of the, uh, of, uh, looking back at the, uh, the right stuff, which was nominated for Best Picture 25 years ago. And so this was, at, you were, you were in, uh, in England, you were at the Old Vic, and at one point did you decide, well, I'm going to go to, uh, America and try it over there.
4: Well, I'd married an American girl. Oh, okay. And we had a, a baby and, uh, came to show off the grandchild. And, mm-hmm. uh, she lived in her, her mother and grandmother lived in uh, Oregon, so I made my way across uh, uh, the United States on, on a train, you know, mm. which was quite an extraordinary experience. We, um, it was, was uh, just before Thanksgiving, after yeah, November. <clears throat> and I shall never forget, we came into uh, Wyoming as the sun was rising, and at a steady pace of, I suppose, you know, 50 to 60 miles an hour, we went all the daylight hours, and were still in Wyoming when the sun went down. And for somebody raised in the uh, British Isles, where <laughs> 400 miles is a long, long distance. Right. That was pretty uh, impressive and there were deer and antelope running alongside the train. I'm not kidding you. (laughs) So that was my introduction to America. Mm -hmm. And then six six months in in Oregon, um, it became clear that that was a very small pond, and I really was an actor and wanted to be an actor, so I made my way back to um, New York and started uh, from scratch there. Right. And... Luckily, I had, uh, coming from the West Country in Devon, I had R's. So I was able to pass as an American
6: mm-hmm.
4: quite early on. Right. And,
6: yeah, go ahead.
0: No, no. No, that's that's great. And so then at some point uh, you had a big year. You were in two revivals and two nominations. Uh, of, uh, yeah. Uh,
4: I was, it, that was with a, a wonderful, a real repertory company uh, where we did um, – we had seven plays in repertory, and I had the lead in six of them. And it was real honest to god repertory. With when there was a matinee, You did one show in the afternoon and a different show in the evening, and one a different show every day of the week. You know, so that was pretty good training, also.
0: Well, and so in during this period, I, I guess like a lot of uh, New York-based actors, you, you you do the stage work, and you do. Uh, television and film, and, you know, that uh, the story is always that the television and film usually supplements the uh, the, the, the stage work, and uh, so before we get to the right stuff, which we will get to in a minute, uh, I got to ask, because you did, uh, I guess, three films with this director, starting yeah. with uh, Popeye, uh, I got to ask about working with Robert Altman, how did he... Uh, Discover you and said you know you know would you be in my film?
4: Yeah, I, I had uh, I run. I was part of a, a, a little uh, utopian um, group theater uh, with Ralph Waite. It was his money when he was a big star on on the the Waltons. And there were four or five of us. Uh, five of us, I think, were called managing artists. And we, those who had put money in, and those who didn't had money out so literally people came off the street and it was a, a really idealistic thing mm-hmm. and uh, Ralph we've made a, a little film called on the nickel the nickel being the skid road in mm-hmm. um, in Los Angeles and um, that got uh, shown Bob Altman saw that and uh, I got a call to go and see him about health which he was going to do I was uh, uh, doing a, a play at the uh, Mark Tabor Forum at the time and he said, uh, yeah, he wanted me in, in the film and I explained I was committed until such and such a date he said, oh, that's okay, we'll give him a late entrance and uh, <laughs> he'd love to start at the beginning and go to the end, you know, he'd shot that way and so uh, the afternoon the matinee, I flew down to, uh, to Florida to uh, the uh, what the hell was it called, the Don César Hotel, um, which is a big, pink, like an ice cake, a real honest, a working hotel, and we shot that uh, film. And I played this, I arrived there uh, the night before, and I kept been asking for a, a script for it. oh, yeah, okay, we'll get a script. So that night, I got a script delivered to my door, and I looked for Colonel Cody, was the name of the character. <clears throat> and every time Colonel Cody appeared... There were two blank pages. In other words, it hadn't been written, <laughs> and uh, so we improvised it right from the get-go, including the costume and uh, my introduction to it was: "I uh, uh, okay Donald, go down that this this um, hallway in the in the hotel where they were shooting, and bang on that door door, under and said, <laughs> said, come on, open up! I know you're in there.'" And that was the beginning of the first line of Colonel Cody. And we went from there. So.
0: Was that, because uh, you did three films with Robert Altman, I guess my question would be is, was that was the experience on that just kind of the same experience on all the others, kind of like giving you the role and then giving you the situation and then letting you kind of uh, improvise and fill it out yourself as an actor, as we've always heard of the, the Altman style?
4: Yeah, partly. Uh, Popeye was the next one. And uh, he uh, that was a sort of rebellion against the studios and the Teamsters. He was going to make another film. I think he was for Fox. I don't remember who the studio was. And uh, he rebelled and took it to Malta. And they built this enormous thing. And it, that Popeye was a, a wonderful script written by Jules Pfeiffer, who had was an, an authority on Seaguar, who wrote... Uh, the, you know, his, his was his idol, and he wrote this wonderful uh, odyssey. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Altman is really was uh, incapable of shooting uh, a script. So he he did um, he dealt himself his method was to deal himself the worst possible hand. And so whenever whatever the intention of the scene was, he would do exactly the opposite and see how it turned out. Well. <laughs> It was sort of tragic because the Pfeiffer uh, script was so wonderful, but we, it never got shot. This uh, other marvelous thing, which fills up the screen with all kinds of business, um, got made instead, and it's sort of fun, but it's not not the, the great thing. Like, an example was there's a, a uh, uh, the the only house in town of you know, the oil house, which is, has, was all in color, so it was original the idea. Everything else was taxed to death in the you know, gray. And there's a, uh, a shot of film, uh, a scene where um, uh, everybody um, is, uh, is eating uh, hamburger. And the right. whole point of the scene was um, that nobody can get hamburger except Privileged, and uh, so he, you know, did exactly the opposite, and uh, right. you know, well, that's how it went.
0: <laughs> I, well, I got to ask real quick about Popeye. What was it like? Because yeah. uh, that was Robin Williams' debut. Mm-hmm. So what was that like to to be in the Oh, that? wonderful,
4: wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he's an extraordinary person, and that mind is just <laughs> it's, it's incredible. You know, we have been Bob's method is to everybody's. Uh, there all the time, you, as I say, you start at the beginning, you work to the to the end, and usually toward the end, you gets sort of tired and and cuts to, <laughs> cuts to the the chase so they don 't end very well um, but and we had to everybody had to get dressed in those ridiculous costumes at like five in the morning right and sit around all day in the hope that you would be used, but very often you weren 't used you know, and Robin was extraordinary because we all dressed in a big uh, it wasn't a tent exactly, but a big communal thing. There were no trailers and no privileges that way. And people would talk about, um, oh, you know, world affairs. And oh, by the way, uh, the PLO was training just down the street from where it worked. Oh,
0: uh, that's interesting.
4: Yes. Um, uh, the, the the government of uh, Malta had allied itself with, with Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, at that time, and so, but anyway, Robin would uh, listen to you know, what was happening. He heard on the news, and then uh, ten minutes, five minutes later, he would have this five or ten minute routine of, with all of this information just put together into a, a routine. You know, the mind is just
6: extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I guess we should get to the, to the right stuff, and so. Yeah. Was around, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was uh, <clears throat> Philip Kaufman, uh, one of the few people who actually saw Hell <laughs> and uh, noticed you in in, in Hell. In, uh... That's right.
4: Yeah, yeah. Similar character, but he didn't recognize me. Right. And he said to his wife, "You know, who is this actor?" Wait for the, the credits at the end. Donald Moffat. And um, <clears throat> but then I got a excuse <clears> me <throat> call from the from my agent saying, "Would you? They want you to play a." Uh, LBJ and I said, "Well, that's ridiculous." And the, well, the, the, I said, "Well, send me a script." And so they, I got a script which was a, a Xerox copy uh, done in the office there. I guess it had no title page on it, so uh, I didn't know who the author was. And so, and uh, I read it and I said, "Well, this is something I have really got to go and see about this." So I went up to meet the director. And only then did I find out it was Phil Kaufman and the whole story of why he was interested in having me. And I said to him, well, I I don't know if I can do it, but if you can get me footage, I'll study it and uh, come back to you and tell you honestly if I think I can do it. And he got me the famous speech where uh, Johnson uh, said he would not not run again. Right. And I looked at that and uh, I saw, I then went down to the... uh, the uh, uh, local Salvation Army and found a pair of glasses that looked more or less like uh, his and um, went in to do a screen test and stuck gum behind my ears, literally, (laughs) and uh, it came off pretty well, obviously.
0: Yeah. um, So I'm curious, was the, the satire of the character of LBJ, was that in the script or was that something that was that evolved while doing the scene
4: uh, no it's it's in it's in the script you know it's it's in Tom Wolfe there's a story I don't know if you know about Phil's story that he was uh, offered this they sent him the the, he got signed to do the film and then they sent him the script and which was written originally by some one of the big name Hollywood writers and they left out they left out Chuck Yeager
6: oh Oh, wow.
4: then Phil went back to them, said, I, I can't shoot this. He said, you <laughs> know, that is the right stuff. He is the right stuff. And so they gave him like a week and said, okay. And he re- wrote this script himself in something like a week. Mm-hmm. And it's an extraordinary piece of work.
0: Yes. Well, and uh, I guess uh, uh, you have two types of scenes. One, I guess, is the... Uh, the scenes in the conference room where yeah. you're getting all this information and then your other big scene is uh, is trying to get into uh, Annie Glenn's house. Yes. Uh, and yeah. uh, you keep getting denied. But all through these scenes yeah. uh, it's just a ratcheting up of uh, frustration. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, LBJ, I guess, was famous for having kind of a short fuse and so you really yeah. kind of uh, embody that and so I'm wondering yeah, exactly. m- maintaining that over and over again and that uh, I'm assuming that can be kind of draining uh, take after take
4: well not really no It's because it's uh, you know that's what it, it was about and Phil I must say is a wonderful director mm-hmm. uh, He didn't, all, all really good directors don't tell you what to do they tell you what not to do when it isn't working they say mm-hmm. that doesn't work try something else, you know And uh, there's just that, the the, the Annie Glenn um, scene, I have to tell you, uh, I'm responsible for the best shot in the whole thing. We were fighting, Caleb Caleb Deschanel is a wonderful, wonderful cinematographer, but we were fighting the light changes that day, as you always do in in, in, in California, and we ran out of time uh, before we got to the very end of the... The thing. Got all the dialogue you know, and that sort of stuff, you know. But um, and they were packing up, and I went to Phil, and they, I said, "Phil, Phil, you've got to have a shot of this, of the car." And um, they they took the camera literally off the truck. He persuaded the the, the teamsters and the the cinematographer the, the, to they uh, put the camera on sticks and with two uh, Teamsters and an Apple box and a two-by-four behind the limousine, they pumped it up and down with, uh, to make it bounce, which got together with them. That was my idea. <laughs> I take credit for that one. Uh,
0: if you're just joining us, we're talking to veteran character actor Donald Moffler are talking about a, a lot of things, but also about his ideas in uh, regards to The Right Stuff, which we are highlighting, which was one of the five Best Picture nominated films from 25 years ago. So, uh, when you saw the final product, when 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 did you see it? Did you did you was there a casting crew screening, or did you see it at a premiere? And I what did you see it, think of it?
4: Uh, well, I thought it was magnificent. When I did see it, and I have to tell you, I did. I had the world's best exit. Uh, I <laughs> had committed. Um, Normally, when you finish in a, a movie, you know the the uh, the. A.D. says, uh, oh, it's finished in the picture, and the crew goes on, pat, 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 and that's about it. You're, my finish, well, I had, um, I uh, was going to go with my wife, in fact, she went ahead for a, a, a vacation in, in Europe. We were all booked and everything, and uh, I went over a day. And so I, my very last was that wonderful scene, which is Phil is responsible for the Sally Rand scene at the end of the film in the so-called cow was in the, the cow palace there it was supposed right. to be the, the astral and but they had like 4,000 uh, extras you know it was a quite a wonderful thing and it finished the last shot was me in the middle on the floor in the middle of that and it was announced over the speakers Donald Moffat is finished in the picture and I walked out waving my Stetson to the cheers f- of 4,000 people straight into a limousine, which took me to the airport, and I took off for London.
0: You can't ask for a better exit than that.
4: No, you can't. I never, never likely to get such a thing again.
0: And and post the postscript of the right stuff is that I guess, uh, I guess for better or worse, it's kind of got you... You kind of became a go-to person when meeting uh, uh, military or political authority figures, be it presidents, or senators, or in the military. Uh, this, this kind of became yeah, a bread-and-butter uh, thing.
6: Yeah,
4: well, l- lucky it wasn't the only thing I did. But uh, right. you know, there, there is a tendency to typecasting in in Hollywood, and and, uh, and I always uh, managed to do theater in between times, so I kept <laughs> my chops. Uh, right.
6: But,
0: well, and, and real quickly, just the other postscript to the right stuff is that, you know, five years later, Philip Kaufman does his next film, and I guess uh, he called you back to do Unbearable Lightness of Being. Yeah. And uh, what, what was that like?
4: Well, that was uh, that was wonderful again with uh, uh, with uh, marvelous actors, you know, helped me
6: <laughs> the, yeah. the lead,
4: the, Daniel Day Lewis. Yes. You know, who was uh, enormously helpful. Uh, Phil wanted that done with accents, and that, that was, that Czech accent is almost impossible to do. And um, uh, Daniel was just enormously helpful in, again, finding a few, like with the LBJ, but you you don't try to do the absolute uh, thing. You find a few little uh, um, ticks or uh, little things that, that Make the thing come 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 alive, you know. And Danny was able to do that with the with the speech, and uh, there was a, quite a wonderful experience there. And I said, hey, you know that uh, Juliette Binoche? That was her first part in English, and she did that more or less phonetically. She wow. spoke English pretty, you know, somewhat, but not right. that well, not like she does now. And Phil had started with somebody else and shot like three or four days and realized. That she wasn't working and he had seen her and so he let the other girl go and uh, that was the beginning of her English career.
0: Well, that's a remarkable film. Uh, well, Mr. Moffat, I want to thank you for taking this time out to talk about, I mean, obviously the right stuff but talk about a lot of things. Uh, it's, uh, you're one of a uh, terrific entertainer. Uh, so please come back whenever you feel like talking some more.
4: Well, bless your heart for asking me. And I'm, I'm giving my... Uh, my love to Veronica.
0: I, I will do that. I
4: will do. That. And and Turner, tell her that Daniel sends his love.
0: Okay. She'll do know. Uh, let's continue. Our next guest is one of the most respected editors of the last forty years. In the nineteen seventies, he helped shape some of the most some of the decade's most memorable films, beginning with Lamont Johnson's The Last American Hero, and continuing with. The Trial of Billy Jack, French Connection 2, Taxi Driver, Black Sunday, New York, New York, Blue Collar, and Hardcore, Tom Rolfe established himself as one of the best in the business. The 1980s saw him associated with some of the most notorious, Heaven's Gate, Nine and a Half Weeks, and some of the most popular, War Games, Stakeout, Black Rain, films of that decade. On The Right Stuff, Roth was part of the creative team that kept Phil Kaufman's intimate epic from feeling indulgent by knowing exactly the tempo required for each scene, and the film's special effects sequences are cut so beautifully that they are at once that they at once stick out without ever overwhelming the rest of the film. And for this masterful for and for his masterful job of editing, Tom Roth received. The best editing Oscar, which he shared with Glenn Farr, Lisa Fruchtman, Stephen A. Rotter, and the late Douglas Stewart. It is my pleasure to welcome Academy Award winning editor Tom Rolfe to Back by Midnight. Mr. Rolfe?
6: Yes,
2: here I am, Aaron. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing okay. A little hung, well, not hungover, but what do you call it? Uh, jet lagged from uh flight in from London.
0: Okay. Uh, so, well, I hope I did a, a serviceable uh, job of pronouncing your your last name. It can be a little tongue-twisting with that. Uh, <laughs>
2: but, you know, it's Rolf. It's uh, usually Rolf is a because uh, I'm of Swedish extraction. Rolf is used as a forename or a prename, um, not usually as a surname. So right. uh, it's quite unusual that way. But uh, that was my my father. Um, use it all his life and so i think it's just as good for me yeah
0: well let me ask you how how did you get into film editing or editing in general
2: well um basically uh, i had a lucky break in that uh, my stepfather um was a contract director at mgm Mm -hmm. and uh, when i got out of the service way back in the 50s i had no idea what i was going to do and and But he lived in a nice big house and a nice shiny car. And I said, well, if I want to do what you do, how would I get started? And uh, his answer was, that if he had to start all over again, he would try to be a film editor first. And uh, I had no idea what that meant. So he explained to me that um, the film editor is the one person who sees whatever was shot the previous day. He gets to see and evaluate what was done uh, performance-wise, etc., um, before anybody else. No one else sees that prior to the film editor. Mm-hmm. And if for no other, just through osmosis, you will learn how to uh, evaluate film, what's good, what's bad. And uh, and that's the film editor's job. And that kind of sunk in at the time. And I was the, the best offer I had. Uh, it was very difficult to get into these studios, even with you having a relative involved at that time, because unions controlled so much. And it was a very... Very difficult and lengthy process, and for about I think it took about two years. I finally got a job as an apprentice, right? And that's what started me. And once I got into the cutting rooms, I just became enamored of the whole, the whole thing. Even though it was at that time there was a uh, a union bylaw that said that you must work eight years as a assistant or an apprentice or whatever before you were ever even allowed to. Uh, Apply for a job as a full editor, right? And uh, that that kind of that, that was a rather daunting future to uh, for a young man at that point. Yes. But uh, I saw
0: that. Thelma Just, Schoonmaker talked about that. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, Scorsese always wanted her on Raging Bull, and she said, you know, and at the time she said, uh, you know, by that time she had done so much work, she she didn't feel that, you know, she he didn't feel that he had to go through that eight-year apprenticeship. Right. Uh, I'm, uh, from what, what she told me, I'm guessing they have uh, rectified that bylaw to a certain extent.
2: Well, now it doesn't exist and hasn't existed now for a few years. But I must yes. tell you I'm uh, very deeply grateful for the, for the experience, even though it was very frustrating for, uh, right. for a young guy. Um, but the knowledge that you – what you saw and what you learned and what you were – what you were taught um, by the old, older editors and the little tricks and little, uh, uh, yeah, little ways to 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 uh, solve uh, story problems and mm-hmm. so uh, you never th- that that uh, what uh, that doesn't exist anymore. And so people, uh, even though people can consider, they can name themselves, they can buy a machine and say, "I'm now a film editor." It takes a long it takes a little bit more than that. And right. uh, Well,
0: uh looking at your at the filmography, I gotta ask about an early title that's on your list, uh and if you can explain the uh association with it. Uh and uh What did you and find? <laughs> and that's Clambake. <laughs>
2: yeah, okay, what do you want to
0: know? <laughs> uh it said, so you were the you were an editor on Clambake? I was. Okay. Uh, tell me about that I mean that's uh, that's an Elvis movie that's yeah, um, an
2: Elvis movie that's correct
0: so what is uh, what's the edict on an Elvis um, am I am I safe in assuming that you know make sure make all the musical numbers make Elvis look good and the well, other stuff? I mean,
2: Yeah, there was a, it was a 28 day shoot we shot it in under a month it was um, how do I say it? I think it was the second Second feature I'd edited. I was just starting out, basically, and the company I'd worked for as an assistant editor doing uh, uh, the *Rifleman* television series and uh, um, *Big Valley* and those, because that's what I kind of started out doing in, in, right. in the States. Um, they had this contract with the, with the United Artists to provide a, a film and uh, with Elvis and. Uh, I was given the opportunity to, to cut it, and, of course, I, I would have taken any job at all at, at that mm-hmm. point. And it was a, it was a delightful experience. It's not a very good film. In fact, it's a, it's a dreadful film in many ways. Uh, <laughs> well, the music well, let me, is, ask, let
0: me yeah. ask you this. Uh, you, you, you're, you, you're very upfront. You said it's a dreadful film. Because, you know, people now are very diplomatic when they talk about when films are coming out and they're doing publicity. But what's it like being uh, someone on a film, your credits on a film, and you're in that post-production process, and you know it's not going to work. I mean, it's one thing if you're the screenwriter, and that's pre-production, and it's out of your hands, or you're in the yeah. actor, and you're in production, and so you think you're good, and it's out of your hands after when it goes in the post, but you're in the final stretch. So what's it like being an editor on a film when you can, When I'm guessing in, you may not tell anyone, but you know in your heart of hearts that this is not a good film?
2: Oh, we, 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 there was more than one of us who knew that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we also knew that we didn't have any money for retakes. There was nothing, and we had a problem with the music, as I recall. Um, gosh, I can't remember the. Uh, Jeff, oh yes, I can. Jeff Jeff Alexander was the name of the uh, the, the music mogul at the time, and he, he they recorded Elvis's music all in back east in Tennessee or wherever wherever it was. And laid down the tracks there. when we got when we got to MGM and, and recorded the music, it was totally out of
3: uh,
2: out of what would you call it uh, out of pitch.
6: Mm.
2: And so there was like a half tonal pitch between Elvis's uh, lyrics and uh, the recording of the master tracks in at MGM.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: So we had a terrible time trying to. If you if you raise the or increase the speed of the, the to to raise the pitch, you also everything went out of sync, you know, with this dialogue and so on. Right. So they did have a machine that they finally were able to to, uh, to I forget where they got it. I think they got it through Panavision or somebody. That somebody had come up with an idea that they could do they could do exactly uh, correct exactly the problem that we had, and we finally like on the last day of mixing were able to uh, to um yeah, circumvent the problem but really? we we, we no, I don't think anybody took took the, the picture very seriously and it was one of of uh, Elvis's earlier works when he was still very much a uh, yeah, kind of a, kind of a flamboyant and uh, he, he was a kid and yeah. uh, loved by everybody he, he was nice to everybody he was uh, he was a joy to be around and called everybody sir because that way he didn't have to remember their names he he, he met so many <laughs> people every day uh, yeah, he was just—he was a joy. But deep down inside, you know, as you point out, everybody knew that it was a—it was not a picture that was going to be memorable. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, well, uh, but I—I I, I still, as uh, I certainly don't deny having worked on that picture because I—I I did the best I could, I think, with what I had uh, to work with.
0: And uh, let me ask you this: that. Because you said you did, you were editor on the Rifleman and the Big Valley. Yeah. And well, no, I, I, gotta, a of,
2: I was the assistant on the on uh, Rifleman, and then Rifleman. I was a, I came editor on Big Valley. Yeah. Big Valley. Yeah.
0: And I got to assume that starting out uh, on television shows with this, you know, with these quick turnarounds, that must be a good training to like really become efficient and. You know, work under pressure.
2: It was very much so, yeah. And you didn't have you didn't have time to sit around and play and try this and try that. You put it together, and it was it was uh, yeah. Your your instincts had to be good, and uh, it was a wonderful training ground. Uh, And as you say, a lot of the uh, well top guys that are still still uh, cutting, they came out of television as well. It was back in the 50s and 60s. Um, yeah, and it's a, you, when you learned your craft. and That's why the eight years was a, a wonderful learning experience.
0: If you could join us, we're talking to Academy Award-winning film editor Tom Rolf about many things on his uh, resume, uh, but also in a minute we'll be talking about the right stuff, which he won his Oscar as one of the creative team editing that uh, American epic. Well, I got to ask real quick because uh, I'm a huge. Uh, uh, my my favorite all-time filmmaker is Martin Scorsese. So I got to uh-huh. ask, uh, uh-huh. and I had an interview last week with Michael Chapman uh, talking about uh, Raging Bull, which is out on Blu-ray, but we also talked about Taxi Driver. So right. I got to ask about how did you get hooked up with uh, Scorsese to edit, I guess, be an editor on Taxi Driver and uh, New York, New York?
2: The What happened was I had had an assistant working with me on a prior film, and I can't remember exactly which what the title of that one was. But I got a call one day from him, saying, "Look, we got a problem. Could you would you be interested in coming over and uh, doing a picture with this guy, Marty Scorsese?" And I think my assistant had worked with him with with Big Bad Bertha or something Bertha in the title. I think. Oh,
0: uh, it was
2: Boxcar Bertha. Boxcar Bertha. right.
0: And the the film before Taxi Driver, I guess, is a Lucky Lady, and oh, uh, Fear in on what? Trial. Fear on Trial or some of
2: the... Uh... Yeah, Lucky Lady was, uh, I just came in and I did one big sequence at the end, the, the end sequence on that.
0: Right.
2: And Fear on Trial was a hallmark Hall of Fame with George C. Scott,
6: hmm.
2: as I remember. Mhm. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many going back over the years. Right. But anyway, getting back to Scorsese, uh, I got a call, would you come in and, and look at uh, some dailies? They, they need some, some help right away. Because, um, as I recall, Marty had finished shooting the picture in uh, New York, had uh, had hired an, a film editor, um, um, Marsha Lucas, but had asked her, by all means, look at the dailies, but don't cut anything until I finish shooting, and then we'll we'll both sit, we'll get together and, and cut the picture together. So, um, they, they, he he then. Um, took two weeks off over a Christmas vacation or something, and then decided to come in and start shoot, start cutting at the first of the year. Whereupon he was told by the I think it was Columbia that uh, they said, "Well, we hope you um, you know you hope you realize that you are committed to turning over a uh, a cut to Columbia or finished uh, first trial in eight weeks." and uh, Evidently, <laughs> Marty had not really paid too much attention to the contract, uh, contract mm-hmm. obligations, so therefore there was a panic, and uh, so Marcia and I started cutting on the uh, on the picture, uh, with Mar- with Marty being in- involved, of course, and then later we brought in, in a third editor to pick uh, up some of the slack so that we weren't falling behind, and on, on the strength of just that relationship between uh, Marty and myself and uh, Marcia. Uh, when the time came and he did New York, New York, I had a call for that. And also, by the way, I did get a call on R- Raging Bull, but I was doing another picture. So that was one of those things that, yeah, what a shame, because that uh, Raging Bull is a magnificent piece of film, I think. Yes. Yeah.
6: And
0: uh, I'm I'm just curious, when there's multiple editors like that, uh, yeah. are is I guess is everyone given kind of a, a section or a sequence to work on?
2: Well, yes and yes and no. Dep- it depends on the director. It depends on the, the time involved and everything mm-hmm. else. Just like in the uh, right stuff, the the normal what happened on taxi drivers, I recall, and don't forget, we're talking this is like this is like a quarter of a century
6: ago. Right.
2: Um, we all t- took sequences and put them together, but then we didn't we didn't own the sequences, as it were. We would if I did a sequence and I turned it uh, turned, just gave it, showed it to. Uh, to Marty, and then Marty would say, "Okay, well, this should be done, and maybe that, and we can shorten this, and that's blah blah blah." Whoever was available would just grab that reel and just uh, work out those changes. Right. And the same thing with, the, with whatever Marcia had done, uh, I would grab her reel and and effect a the changes. That so there was no personal style. Everybody, yeah. every editor has a. Uh, if, if it's not stylized, it's a certain uh, tempo. Uh, it works mm-hmm. with a certain rhythm, and so there was nothing. Nobody could protect their own little <laughs> bailiwick if you will uh right. having done something so it worked out very well and I, the picture was well as you know it's still a it's it's still quite a
6: uh, a famous I mean, film I mean, yeah
0: well and so uh i guess getting bringing to the subject at hand uh nineteen seventy nine i guess uh, that's when you do hardcore and uh I guess that was your second time working with Paul Schrader. Because Schrader, it, yeah, I did uh, Blue Blue Collar first. Blue Collar, which is a remarkable piece of work. And That's a, it's a
2: good one of my favorites too. I think it's a good it's, film.
0: It's really, really, really good. And Hardcore is terrific. And yeah. There's a lot of terrific, uh, you know, the the editing of the the nightlife sequences are really, really fine. Uh, I, so, I don't
2: I don't remember them that well. I have to go back and take a look.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and so was it because of that that how, how did your name get to uh, Philip Kaufman? I guess he was you know,
2: I I don't know. I know this that at the time, Wright stuff was being uh, they've been shooting for for months for a long time, and there was a there was a, a, a what do you call it a length problem. Uh, right. The lad problem. The lad company. Um, they, they, the, the picture was running like three hours long or something, and and they the, the other people have been working on it for months and months. And I just, I think I just, I can't remember. Oh, I finished uh, War Games, I think that's what, no. Yeah, War Games, I think. And I got a call saying, would you come up to San Francisco And um, with a new set of eyes, uh, looking to see what they have and see if you, could, if you can help and make the picture shorter. And that was my initial um, uh, introduction to uh, the movie. And so I i was up there in the Frisco for a couple of months. And we managed, well, the, the all of us uh, were directed to, to uh, try to shorten, or make it a little more uh, realistic in terms of a theatrical release because it was ways too long.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, that was my um, the reason I went up, and that's what well, I, I, I had the uh, the position of what they call a closer, if you will. You know?
6: Right.
2: Um, and I had a wonderful time. And it's a, it's a yeah, it's a picture that I must admit that there's some some great stuff in that movie. Uh, Phil Kaufman did a great job
0: well so I gotta ask I mean as you said you were a closer you are coming in kind of late and brought in to kind of uh, you know see if you can uh, harness this thing and so were you greeted by the other editors who had been working on it all this time uh, suspiciously or they're like thank you I
2: I don't think so I don't think there was certainly everybody knew the the then the object was to to make the film better or shorter or make it more
6: uh,
2: uh, commercial. So we were all uh, we were all uh, focused on the same thing. I don't think there was any jealousy or anything. And since I wasn't there to replace anybody, I was only right. there to, there to augment the uh, the team, if you will.
0: Right. And so I, it worked out quite well. Well, I guess it's kind of a ironic thing that uh, an epic of this scale that. I guess you be, uh, people were wanting to bring in shorter. Goes and gets nominated for best editing.
2: Yeah, it, it was it was a um, it was a shock. I must admit, it was it was very gr- gratifying for me because that that was a very good year for me because uh, the the, uh, the Aces, which is the the uh, honorary organization of the American Cinema Editors, and we have an, uh, an award uh, that we give out every year as well. And I won that for the uh, for War Games uh, at right. the same time that. Uh, same year that I got the the, uh, the Academy Award for uh, Right Stuff, so that was that, that was a thrill.
0: Well, uh, I guess uh, if you just join us, we're talking to Academy Award-winning editor Tom Rolf, we're talking about a lot of things, but uh, the occasion is talking about the Right Stuff, which was nominated for Best Picture 25 years ago, but uh, he also he won an Oscar, shared an Oscar for Best Editing, and so uh, let me ask you about War Games because that is kind of a, a groundbreaking film with all its Use of computers and so forth, and and it is a it is interesting that you you were uh, associated with two films of that year eighty three uh, War Games and the Right Stuff that really right. deal with uh, really deal with uh, the best of technology at that time in special effects.
2: Yeah, yeah, we had the the screen the 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 war room of uh, War Games was quite uh, quite unusual, uh, but the execution of it was brilliant, I think, and. Most people don't know that there was another director that uh, started the film, and he was let go of about three to four weeks into the shooting.
6: Right.
2: And um, and then John Batten came in to take over. I think he only had like three or four days of preparation. Uh, he had done another picture. He had done a picture called um, I Blue
6: think Thunder.
2: Blue Thunder, thank you, yes. And so his the editor that he had normally worked with was unavailable because he was uh, trying to finish Blue Thunder. So they asked me if I would stick around with War Games because uh, since I've been hired by the original director, and uh, so I said I did, and uh, turned out to be a very good uh, relationship because Bateman uh, and I did another picture called Stakeout, uh, right? A couple of years later, yeah. But uh, War Games was a uh, yeah, it was uh, the, the the pre-planning the, was done by the the. Original director of all the screens about how they would work and what the the uh, the the, um, yeah, the incoming or the outgoing missile attacks, um, but it was done so well and it was kind of uh, revolutionary for uh, for special effects at that point.
6: Right.
0: Well, I got to ask uh, to go back to 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 the right stuff. Okay. So what, what, what was it like? I mean, because this is pre, you know. You know, pre, uh, you know, all the entertainment blogs, entertainment websites, pre E-Online. So how did you find out that you were nominated? I'm assuming, you know, it's not like, I I, I don't know, was it like it is today where, you know, supposedly everyone is up in the morning ready to, you know, watching the uh, announcements. I got to assume it wasn't like that back in... 83, 84.
2: No, and not only that, I mean, I didn't even... I mean, I had no idea that uh, that we even had a chance. Mm-hmm. First of all, because there was five of us involved, and uh, and that was very, very unusual. Of course, there was so much film to work with. I mean,
6: uh,
2: I guess you, you could go back and recut the movie and make it into a four-hour movie because there was so much material involved and scenes that played, uh, you know, played, you know, for, uh, let's say... For Four to five minutes were cut down to a minute or a minute and a half. So there's was, there's was a lot of stuff in that uh, vault somewhere. Wow. Um So it, it it was a in a very intense uh, amount of time spent in the uh, in the cutting rooms uh, dealing with the you know dealing with the length problems.
0: Mm-hmm. But so and so you get nominated. And so what was that? What was it? How did you find out? Did did someone call you in the? Yeah, atmosphere? somebody
2: somebody called me. So you're not going to believe this, but you got nominated for. Uh, for right stuff. And I thought maybe because I've been nominated or, or won for uh, War Games because of the ACE Awards, maybe that they said that you're nominated, I figured it was going to be for War Games. But no, it was uh, right stuff. So that was a, a big shock, big surprise.
0: And so, what do you remember of that Oscar night? Uh, what do you remember <laughs> that night? And I'm, I'm guessing uh, someone was appointed the uh, spokesperson for the five of the, um, i uh who was
2: that person well there was not that person as a matter of fact it it it
0: it it, I, I, it was a
2: strange thing we all five were on on the, on the stage and i forget exactly who it was i think it was glenn Farr, who glenn Farr was the most senior of all the uh, all of us cuz he started the uh, picture about a year year and a half before mm-hmm. and he took the microphone and then he passed it over to to somebody else and then so, and I, I was at the end of the line and I uh, I did the wrap up if you will um but all five of us um had a uh, something to say mm-hmm. and and I think and uh, Johnny uh, uh what's his name god I can't remember his name now Johnny Carson um, Johnny Carson was the the host at that point and uh, yeah it was uh, it, we got by you know, you, you, it's very difficult when you're standing up there on that stage and uh, with the microphone. And you're looking out; you can't see anything because you've got all these lights in your eyes. But you are talking to millions of people throughout right. the world. And when, once you're aware of that, it really it, it tends to humble you a lot. It was a remarkable experience.
0: Well, I, I'll have to ask the inevitable question: uh, Where is the statue? It's in storage, okay. <laughs> and
2: the, the reason it's in storage is because the, uh, my wife and I are. We're moving uh, all of our stuff and everything from uh, from well from America to Europe, uh, we're going to be headquartered in Europe. Oh, okay. So that's why it's in it's in transit. Let's put
0: it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, b- before I let you go, I got to ask about a couple of titles that uh, I stated earlier in the '80s. You were kind of uh, associated with a couple of uh, <laughs> notorious titles. Uh, I beg your the- pardon. Yeah. Go. <laughs> One being, obviously, um, Heaven's Gate.
2: Oh, yeah,
6: yeah. And,
0: um, you know, I, this might go back to that question I was talking about with the clambake, when, you know, you're in that post-production and you know it's it's not working, if yeah. you will. Uh, I guess this is, you know, this might be a, that similar situation, you know, years later, but, you know, on a bigger scale. And what what was that... What was that like?
2: Well, you're dealing with two different kinds of people, the director of Clambake and the director yeah. of uh, Heaven's Gate. Um, whereas the director of Clambake, uh, on a much smaller scale, of course, the movie and everything, was uh, receptive to any kind of a idea or a cut or a trim or whatever, and take a look at it and say, no, yes or no, yeah, that works, what a good idea, what a bad idea, etc. Uh, the, uh, the director of Heaven's Gate would would absolutely refuse any any kind of a uh, um, observation about his quotes, his work so if he said well, well what do you think of that and I said I think it's too long he, he would take personal objection to the point that he felt that I was attacking him not not the film right. and it became an untenable situation and I was on the film for 17 months and finally I said I can't take it anymore because he, he, he made it absolutely so difficult and I knew that it was it became a matter of ego. Who's going to be in control? And not that I, not that I assumed or even remotely wanted control. I just wanted to be able to make a intelligent uh, uh, suggestion, maybe. Because it was just it was just horrendous, and it got worse day by day. If uh, if he said, uh, you know, if I said I think that's too long, he'd say make it three feet longer. Just yeah. So um, did you I,
6: ever?
0: the post did you ever talk to the editor who came in after you to follow his orders? Well,
2: yes, and also what happened, I don't know if you remember this, but they
6: yeah, he
2: had a terrible time, of course, as well, because everything then became my fault uh, that uh, he had to correct all the things that I had done wrong. But, of course, all the things that I had done were at the explicit suggestion of the of the director. Right. In any case, um, yes, I just spoke with him, and then after the picture – Released. Um, I called a friend of mine at uh, at UA, and, this, and they released in New York, by the way, on a certain night. I forget exactly what Thursday or Friday night, New York. And I was kind of I, I was I, I had a fearful moment, saying, Well, maybe maybe this director is a maybe he's a genius. Maybe maybe he is right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there, maybe I've been all this deluding myself. And so I called this friend of mine at the U.N. I said, "What happened at the opening in, in New York?" And uh, he said, we just pulled it. And I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah, we, we pulled a release. And the release. The reaction was so incredibly negative that they didn't even play out the first week, uh, which they were bound to do. They had to pay a penalty. And then they went out and they recut the movie for six months, brought it back. Uh, oh, I think about 40 minutes shorter, and re-released it. And of course, it tanked again. So mm. it has a cer- it has a certain cachet to that uh, film. It uh yeah, it, it, it's
0: uh, well from it, what it, I understand it has a rather actually rather loyal cult following in Europe. It does.
2: It, it people, does and, and the, the, the four
0: hour cut. Yeah,
2: of course the uh, the French love it and but they also love Jerry Lewis, so um I, I don't make a comparison there but
6: mm.
2: strange, uh, right. strange uh strange and, uh strange
0: and I guess the the other film that I'll uh, I'll, I'll ask about because uh, and here's a a film I guess dealing with censorship uh, or having to make modifications. That's Nine and a Half Weeks. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious when you were doing that film. And by the way, I am a fan of Nine and a Half Weeks. Uh, so I'm curious uh, oh. when when you were doing that in post production, did you know you know. We're not going to be able to get. How early on the game did everyone know that there's some things we're not going to be able to get away with? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. I, th- there was one time, I can't remember the exact amount of time, but I went back to the, to the, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the, the board, the censorship board, in Sherman Oaks, California, and I went back three, four, I think three times in one day and four times the next day, making minuscule cuts because they won't tell you exactly what the, they won't. They just say no. You can't. You can't release it. But they can't. They won't tell you exactly what to take out. So we knew the areas of, that we had a problem in. But so I'd go in and snip at a frame, and or take a couple of frames off, and do this. And finally, I think they just got tired of me showing up like uh, any time. They finally let it go. And I think we got away with a, we got away uh, with much more than we should have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, by the way, nine and a half is one of my favorite uh, pictures too. I think it, it looks sensational. And the director Adrian Lyne is a. I did another picture for him called uh, Jacob's Ladder, which is one of my favorites.
0: That's a remarkable piece of work, editing yeah. and just visualization. I uh, I, I am curious because I have had this. I've had a question that that, that I wanted to ask uh, editors who are on certain films. And like, what is it like to actually edit a sex scene for maximum effect? I mean, it's one thing when you have it written on the page, and it's another thing when you have the raw footage but i mean you're actually having to shape it to something that is kind of uh you know supposed you, to be effective if you will
2: well i i subscribe to the the old method i'm being a little bit uh, uh going over the top here in in that in the older films you um you saw Cary grant take uh deborah Carr, or whoever the lady was and and walk into the bedroom and i shut the door and that's that's the end of the sex scene but you could, your imagination is what what made the, the scene work at that point. Uh, and it's the same thing about cutting it. Uh, the less you show, the more the, the audience is able to imagine and and the picture. Um, and I, therefore, that, I think that's the way it, it works best.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Mr. Rolf, uh, I want to thank you. Uh, I could go on and on. We I didn't even get a chance to talk about uh uh, Executioner song or heat, uh, which uh-huh. are also two of my all-time favorites. Um, yeah. uh, I did, I did have a, as you know, Executioner song is now out on DVD last year, and I had a, I had the privilege of talking to Lawrence Schiller about that.
2: Oh, did you? Yeah, I haven't talked to Larry in a long time. that I, I respected Larry did a wonderful job on that picture,
6: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, yeah, my, my involvement with that was on the second half. I did the, the second night. Uh, I forget who the gentleman who did the first night, but yeah, say, I, I can point to that, uh, to that particular show with the great pride. I like that a
0: lot. And were you responsible for, I guess, editing for television? The, you know, I guess the more, the cleaned up version, if you uh, will?
2: I, you know, I think, I don't remember if I did a television version or not. I, I, Larry would remember, but I don't. At the time, I know I was doing a couple of things, I, I, there was a couple of times in my life, in my career, that I was working on one picture in the, in the evening and one picture during the daytime, so getting a little confused. All
0: right. Well, uh, Mr. Rolf, I want to thank you for taking this time out to talk about many things, but particularly the right stuff. Okay. Uh, it's been a real, real pleasure. Please, uh, uh, I know you're moving to uh, you're moving your base, but please, uh, you have an open invitation to call back, uh, call back anytime.
2: Okay, fine. And uh, who's now? Who's coming up next?
0: Uh, Veronica is coming up next, yeah. uh, Veronica Cartwright. Would and you please
2: uh, uh, would you please tell Veronica uh, hello for me?
0: I will do that. Too. I will most and, certainly do uh, that.
2: And you can pass on uh, my email address if she would like to have it, okay? Okay.
0: No, I will do that myself. Okay. Uh, I'll All right.
2: You okay, Aaron. Thank you. Thank and, you. Bye-bye. Uh,
0: our next guest has been acting for over 50 years. She came to prominence as Violet Rutherford, the girl to give the beaver his first kiss on Leave it to Beaver. In the 1960s, she appeared in such memorable movies as The Children's Hour and The Birds, while also appearing on the TV shows Daniel Boone and The Twilight Zone. In the late 70s, she became a scream queen of sci-fi and horror fare, giving memorable performances as the hysterical Lambert and Ridley Scott's Shocker Alien and as the frightened Nancy in Philip Kaufman's post-counterculture update of Invasion of the Body Snatches. She's made it a point to associate herself with offbeat yet quality work, from movies like Inserts, Going South, and The Witches of Eastwick*, to TV shows like L.A. Law, The X-Files, and Six Feet Under. Veronica Cartwright has been a welcome presence in almost anything she's appeared in. In The Right Stuff, as Betty Grissom, wife of Fred Ward's Gus Grissom, Cartwright locates the pride and disappointment that comes with being the wife of an astronaut. She's the opposite of Mary Jo Deschanel's extremely shy Annie Grissom. Cartwright's supporting performance is exactly the kind of extra layer of emotion that makes the right stuff, that marks the right stuff as more than just a chronicle of the early days of the space race. It is my pleasure to welcome veteran actress Veronica Cartwright.
5: Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. It's great to talk to I just to you. Uh, I I didn't realize when I called in I I was able to hear uh, Tom there.
0: Yes, Tom, and also uh, the first guest of the evening was uh, Donald Moffat, and he. Also... Oh,
5: I didn't know that. Yes, I saw wanted... that it said Donald on the list, but. It, yes, and
0: he wanted me to uh, pass along his uh, his hello and and uh say hi and uh pass along his love to to uh, Veronica Cartwright.
5: Mm. Oh, great. Great. And I'd love to get Tom's um email. Apparently will, he said to pass that on too. I will so I will I
0: almost certainly do that.
5: Great. Well, uh to start
0: with, your your sister is an actress. And so right. I'm wondering was was that the uh, impetus for you to become an actress or is it independent of that?
5: Oh, no, that was totally, um, what happened was we were born in England, right. and um, so we're British. Like and, Donald Luffett. Yeah, like Donald. <laughs> and then we emigrated um, to Canada, and then my dad always wanted to come to America. And in those days, you needed to get a sponsor. So right. the sponsor um, sponsored us into uh, Canada, and then we drove down. And I was like six and a half. My sister was three and a half. And um, we moved to to El Segundo into an apartment. We didn't have a telephone. My mother didn't know anybody. And um, so she started asking around, how do you meet people? And so the landlady actually suggested that our kids, she said, your kids are cute. You should put them into this modeling and introduced us or my mom to this woman Ruthie Robinson's mother, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> and they she told us about an agent who was Lola Moore, who was, you know, like every kid's agent. And you'd go on these interviews, which were like cattle calls. And um, Angela went on her first interview at three and a half, and she had to say Mary had a little lamb. And um, she got the part as Pierre Angeli and Paul Newman's daughter in Somebody Up There Likes Me. Wow. And uh, then and I had thousands of freckles and long braids, and so I looked totally all-American, even though I wasn't, so I did lots of sort of print ads and peanut butter ads and things like that. And I ended up being the Kellogg's girl. I did um, sugar smacks and Rice Krispies and cornflakes and all of those before I did the beaver, but... No, it was just sort of Angela then at four and a half got Danny Thomas' show, Make Room for Daddy, mm-hmm. and then she was on that for seven years. So the whole thing was totally accidental. Oh, okay. <laughs> Either one of us were in it.
0: But, uh, but did you, uh, I'm assuming you both took to it early and you just thought it was a lot of fun? Or? Oh,
5: yeah, I loved it. I mean, um, we had gone to... Uh, you know, we took little um, dancing classes, and and we put on little plays. You know, like all those all the kids do right. in schools and stuff like that. Um, and I was, I think, really lucky in the fact that I got different roles. Angela, you know, she was on the series for seven years, and then she was on Lost in Space, and and then on another series after that, Make Room for da- uh, Granddaddy. <laughs> and I got to do movies and things like that, and. I just after doing the children's hour was when I decided that. that's exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. And I wanted to be like Shirley MacLaine. Right. So well, I I got to
0: ask uh and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times but I got I'll, I'll ask you for my own edification. You're you're in the birds. Mm-hmm. And so I got to ask uh your Alfred Hitchcock anecdote because we always hear these stories about Hitchcock uh you know thinking actors are cattle or so forth, but I was wondering if, uh, if his temperament was different with children. Or...
5: I, I got along great with him. Uh, um, I had done the Children's Hour, which apparently Mr. Hitchcock had seen, Right, and he requested meeting me for the part of Kathy. Mm-hmm. Um, I went, and then, of course, he discovered that I was born in Bristol, and that happened to be the where his favorite warehouse was for wine. <laughs> Um so he proceeded to tell me the best bottles of wine. Of course, I was 12, so I wasn't quite on the ball. I wish I'd have known it now, you know. Right. Um, he told me how to cook a steak because sometime I would need to, when I get married, I would need to know how to do that. Um, <laughs> all this bizarre stuff. He just was, he would tell when we were on the set, he told dirty jokes. Of course, I didn't have a clue, but everybody else was laughing, so I figured, well, I guess I laughed too. Um, he was very generous. Um, there would, would be things like um, the end of the movie, when you go um, where there's like that stack shot, and you see Rod Taylor, and then it zooms to Jesse, and then it zooms to me and, and right. then Tippy. Um and there's where it's where he goes to open the door, and he moves his hand and he opens the door. And I said to him, well, won't people know that there's no door? And he says, well, if I have a door, I'd never be able to see you. And he goes, show him how it's done. So Rod leans forward, and he totally mimes the whole thing, and the whole thing is done with light. <laughs> I mean, and he goes, now that is the magic of movies. Wow. I mean, it was like the classic thing. And it was like so fabulous. And every time you watch it, you just you don't even think about it. You just believe yeah. there's a door there.
6: Right.
5: Um, it was great. He was really nice to me. And um, I had my 13th birthday while I was on the set. And they threw me a big super, uh, surprise birthday party. And he did an image of himself um, on a piece of cardboard, and he did his image, and he wrote to the woman I love, Veronica, and then signed it, Alfred Hitchcock. So I still have that. That's great.
0: If uh, if you get just joining us, we're talking to uh, Veronica Cartwright about many things, but also on the, uh, the occasion we're looking back uh, at Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff uh, 25 years ago, nominated for Best Picture. Well, i got to ask because... Uh, uh, before we get to the right stuff, and, and this sort of leads into it, because you, in the late '70s, uh, you, as you said, you you you, wanted, you you were lucky enough to get a lot of variety of roles, but there was a I guess a brief moment there where I guess you could have been labeled a, a scream queen, with uh, Body Snatchers and uh, Alien, kind of back to back. Right. Uh, so. I gotta, I gotta ask about. Uh, I, I mean, obviously body snatchers probably. Uh, I'm assuming led to you uh, into the right stuff. So, so how did you get uh, body snatchers, and what was that like? To, to well,
5: actually, to talk- I had um, just done a movie going south, and right. I had just come back from Mexico because we shot it down in Durango, Mexico, mm-hmm. and. Um, I got this request to go in and meet uh, Phil Kaufman and um, Bob Solo, who was the producer. So I went in and I talked to them. And I guess, I don't know, I was slightly sunburned, you know, and my hair was sort of wild and I had like an antique shirt on. I mean, I guess I just sort of looked like the hippie girl that she was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And um, so I ended up getting that part. And um, the whole ending of that movie, where I'm screaming and everything, um, I was told one thing, and um, Donald was told another, and we didn't know how it was going to end, and we just simply reacted off of what the other person did.
0: Wow, what what, and, what were you told? I got, I got to ask. What, what, um, can you tell? Uh, well,
5: I, I think, I, I can't. Totally remember, but I believe it was I was supposed to keep myself totally under control because I was possibly um, a pod, right? And um, but then when Donald saw me, you know, and and then I talked to him, but I'm I'm staying very focused and not trying to show any emotion because if you showed any emotion, then that meant that you were you know off right. um, that you were bad, so. I can't remember exactly how Phil worded it, but I thought Donald was, I thought that everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he turned around and did that scream and I just flipped out. I mean, that was like totally spontaneous because I i really thought that we were like going off at the end of the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it didn't work out that way. But Maybe. then I just did that invasion, the... Um, the Invasion with um, Nicole Kidman. Right. And that was as a result of doing Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Cause
0: mm-hmm. Well, was, it is uh... one of the great endings in horror film history, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, it really is something, uh, a real shocker uh, at the time. And so then, uh, before we get back to Phil Kaufman, i got to ask, was it because of that that, uh, I guess, Ridley Scott saw that?
5: and. Um. No, I don't know whether he ever saw that or not. When I went on the interview for um, Alien, um, I went and saw them at 20th Century Fox in California. Mm -hmm. And I read for the part of Ripley. And I happened to be going to London Mm -hmm. um, to visit. And I thought, well, while I'm over there, I might as well go see them. So I called my agent, and I said, well, look, I'm here. Maybe they would like to see me again. Because I am British, and I didn't know whether there was a quota system. A lot of times these movies have quota systems
6: right? where they
5: can only bring over so many Americans. Because mm-hmm. I had done the movie inserts there, and that had been – um, one of the things, and I happen to have an American accent, but I was also British, mm-hmm. as was Stephen Davies. So it helped to bring over, you know, the other two actors, Richard Dreyfus and Jessica. Right. So I thought, well, you know, might as well take the chance. And so I went and read for them again when I was in England, and then I ended up getting it. But I thought I had the part of Ripley. <laughs> when I went back over there and they sent me back over and they called and they said I was to come in to do wardrobe for, um, Lambert. I said, Oh no, I'm playing Ripley. <laughs> and they said, no, I was the only part I'd ever read for. I read three times for it. Hmm. And it was always oh, Ripley. I never even looked at the script from Lambert's point of view.
6: Right.
5: So anyway, that, uh, that's how that came about. But, um, Originally, I, I, it started out as just like a B movie, you know, and, right. and just sort of took off.
0: Well, I got to ask you about I, for my money the uh, your great moment in Alien, and that's actually the um, the slap, if you will, uh, to Sigourney Weaver. Um, oh yeah, and that was cut. That was cut, but now you know now it's back in a director's cut. And I must admit, right. when I saw that uh, when it was re released, I guess five six years ago. I found that quite startling, but also uh, when I saw it, it was actually kind of a a crowd pleasing moment. Um, I remember everyone. I remember in the theater I saw it, they actually cheered. <laughs> uh, at that time, they were pretty. They were just as angry, I guess, as uh, Lambert was. And uh, it's a very good slap. Uh, so I was wondering, um, uh, how much did you hold back, and how much did you not? Well,
5: see, what happened was, um, every time I went to hit her, Mm -hmm. uh, Sigourney was ducking. (laughs) So then Ridley, I I mean, we did it, I guess, about three or four times. I come in and I go, and she would move her head. So Ridley just came up to me and said, I want you to get her this time. So I said, okay. So I came in and I went one way and then I backhanded her. And Mm -hmm. she went right into it. She was not happy. I mean, I really hit her hard. <laughs> but um, it was, you know, what was called for in the scene. Um, so
0: It's a great moment. Um, it's a, Like I said, uh, it, it was one of the few additions to the director's cut I really did like. I thought it was pretty...
5: Well, it's interesting in the outtakes. I'm mm-hmm. like in nine of the 12 um, takes, you know, right. outtakes. I mean, I didn't realize it was in it that much. <laughs> uh,
0: if you just joined us, we're talking to actress Veronica Cartwright about a lot of things, but on the occasion of this Looking Back at the Right Stuff, which was nominated for Best Picture 25 years ago. So you did Body Snatchers, and then uh, a few years later, Kaufman, Philip Kaufman is doing The Right Stuff. Um, I'm guessing, uh, was it a case that he remembered you from Body Snatchers and had a role for you?
5: Yes. As a matter of fact, um, He said that he wrote it with me in mind, but Mm -hmm. that didn't stop the fact that I had to go in and, you know, read for it and stuff, because other people needed to be convinced. Mm -hmm. But um, Phil told me that he wrote it for me. So, I mean, which was really great. Um, (laughs) And I had been in a really bad car accident, and I had just gotten my cast off my leg, And when I knew I had this interview, I thought, oh, my gosh. So I was walking up and down stairs so I wouldn't limp. My mother even had to drive me to the interview because I wasn't allowed to drive.
6: Mm.
5: And um, (laughs) when I saw Phil, he came out, I went, oh, my. So I danced like, you know, hey, what's happening? I sort of did a jig down the hall so he wouldn't know that I was limping. (laughs) Oh my gosh, and just prayed that they didn't watch me leave. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But um, no, I went in looking totally patriotic and red, white, and blue. I thought, oh my God, you know, she was such a wonderful character. um, It was so sad, you know, she was so real. And I just thought that actually Phil did a brilliant job of adapting Tom Wolfe's book. Right. because so many times the adaptations have nothing to do with the, what the book is, Right. and I think he totally caught the essence and the flavor, and it was literally like he put action to stream of consciousness, mm-hmm. and I just thought it was a brilliant screenplay.
0: Well, I gotta, I gotta ask, what uh, research you did? I, I don't, did, were you able to meet? Uh, Betty Grissom? Or um, you...
5: No, because um, Betty was still in lawsuits all these years later um, because he did not blow the hatch. Right. And, um, of course, you know, there was a big controversy of whether he did or he didn't and NASA was so let down and Look Magazine and all these things right. um, that they made, you know, pushed it into the background. That's why it was just a You know, a ceremony on an airstrip, and and why she never got to meet Jackie. And uh, of course, it was discovered later that it was pressure when it hit the water. It just, it had never, they'd never had anything go that far out and come back down, you know. Right. So um, then they decided that they would remove any kind of explosive hatch. And unfortunately, when there was a the big electrical fire where he perished,
6: mm-hmm.
5: um, you see him trying to unscrew the hatch mm-hmm. to get them out. Right. Um, it was just horrible. So um, Betty, rightfully so, was incredibly bitter, and there were still suits going on. They gave me, showed me footage um the research department gave everybody on the movie a package of what their story was Mm -hmm. with as much information as you could possibly imagine. Um, And I saw footage, it was like I saw that purse that she comes to the airport in when they drop her off in the helicopter. Right. Um, And it was a straw purse with these flowers on it, and it was just like such an essence of what Betty was, you Mm -hmm. know. Um so we tried to duplicate that and tried to duplicate as m- much of her clothing as we possibly could to get how she felt, you know, she was she so wanted to be something more than she was. Right. And um well and I said in the, at the beginning it is
0: one of those that character is one of those extra layers that Kaufman decided to put in the film that you can imagine a studio executive saying, "You know, we could we could lose ten minutes if you cut this part out because um, it's not totally tangent to the main thrust of your story. But it, it is one of those extra layers that makes the right stuff what it is." Mm-hmm. And, and, um, well,
5: also, it it justifies what Fred's character and why he responds. You know, mm-hmm. why he responded the way he did. Gus, you know, right.
0: Well, I want to ask about that uh, first, Fred Ward. But uh, ask about Fred Ward. But first, I want to ask about uh, because it, there there is these two groups that we are seeing in the film: the, the 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 astronauts, and we see them together. And then there's the group of the astronauts' wives and girlfriends, mm-hmm. and we see them together. So I'm curious about some of those those scenes. And was there any of that, uh, you know, off camera, trying to kind of, uh, you know? create some kind of facsimile of that kind of group of, uh... oh
5: absolutely i mean we would be put into groups and the guys would be put into groups and then the women would be put into groups and we all became like really good for we used to hang out you know all the time and and there was this place called tosca's i believe it's still there where they play opera and sam Sh- uh shepherd actually used to go play pool in the the back all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lady who runs it was a very, very good friend of um, Phil's and his lovely wife, Rosemary. And so it sort of became like the hangout. And, but when we would go, the guys would sort of drift off and they'd go and all play pool, you know. And we'd all sit around and we'd be talking and everything. And then the guys would come out I mean, it was just fascinating. It was like, you know, it was like we were doing what was in the film mm-hmm. um and i i don't know if it was a conscious thing or an unconscious thing it was just it was fascinating right. you know we'd like hang out for a while and then they would drift off and go do their thing and we would drift off and go and do ours and um but it it was a great movie for comradeship everybody was terrific on it and um because there were so many of us, um, we all, we were in honey wagons. And I remember I was in the honey wagon with Pamela Reed. We shared. But, of course, our we, we had underslips that were so big, one would have to go and stand on the toilet in order to be able to get their dress on. So that, because we couldn't move, <laughs> it was ridiculous. We used to sit like two soldiers sitting next to each other knitting. I mean, it was hysterical. Um and so you just you formed all sorts of bonds. It was, it's, it was very cool. And they've had a couple of revivals of it. And I've run into Mary Jo. And, you know, it's, I don't know. It was a great comradeship that sort of picked up. Even if you don't see people for a long period of time, it's great to see them because there right. was a true bond.
0: Well, and, and along with this pairing off, the, this siphoning this off of these groups, I'm guessing, uh, as far as the guys' side, uh, I mean, so you're kind of teamed up with Fred Ward, and so I was wondering what that was like because for, uh, up to that point, uh, you know, Fred Fred had been seen in some things, but he was still, it you know, it wasn't uh, post-right stuff where everyone you know became aware of Fred Ward. So I was wondering. Well,
5: nobody knew Ed Harris either. Right.
0: Ed Harris and, and some. of I there. mean, and
5: Dennis had just started sort of. You know, I guess he's done more work than anybody.
0: Right. Sam
5: was totally known as a playwright.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, nobody was really known. I mean, it was easy for everybody, I mean, I think as an audience, right. to get lost in their characters because they all weren't movie stars.
6: Right.
5: And as a result of that, I mean, Lance Hendrickson works all the time, and of course, Dennis, and, and Sam has gone on to do some wonderful stuff since, and um, well, Jeff Goldblum. Well, oh, Jeff Goldblum. For. Well, I had been in Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Jeff. Right. And, I mean, it's, he was my husband in that. The it's kind of one of
0: those. It's kind of one of those things where seen today, the right stuff is a <laughs> is an all star cast. Uh, where seen in 1983, is kind of a uh, a cast of uh, unknowns
5: or relative unknowns. Yeah. Well, I mean the huge thing that went on when uh, with Ed Harris, you know, and him on the cover of Newsweek and it was the whole time that John Glenn was actually running for right. office. Well, it was I, it was pretty intense. Yeah. Well I so uh
0: you do the film and so you finally get to see it and what what did you think and what was what did you think of it, uh obviously then the immediate reaction and how do you feel about the film, I guess, you know, as we talking 25 years later.
5: Well, uh, hello. Hello. I'm here. Oh, hi. Somebody just came on and told me I was in the host queue.
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what that is, though. It's not me. <laughs> um,
5: well, they did the most incredible premiere I have ever in my life experience. It was just fantastic. They did it at the Kennedy Center in Washington DC and um they took over um an an old airport. There was a section I guess of some of the airport where they had old planes, old right. you know, soft with camels and all sorts of things. And then um uh, oh God um Oh, my God, the right stuff. Um, What's his name? Chuck Yeager. Chuck (laughs) Yeager actually flew down the Potomac and led a flight, and they just skimmed right along the Potomac. I tell you, it was the most spectacular thing. And then we all went to this party, and they had like a Glenn Miller band, and people (laughs) would be dancing out by these old planes, and everybody was there. It was just, it was fantastic. And then, um, I guess about 20 years ago, no, about five, six years ago, they did a showing at the Egyptian Theater
6: hmm.
5: with a brand-new print and everything. Right. And it was it was really fabulous. But well, I had good. also done that thing with Roger Ebert, and they showed it um, right. at Champaign, Illinois, at his um, festival that he does. And it's
0: interesting enough that I'm sure at the time, as as I've done research, you know, it got unanimous praise, but it was also there were some people who were a little uh, concerned about its tonal shifts, you know, because it's satire, then it's docudrama, and then it's... Uh, but it was the
5: book.
6: That's
0: what you know, the book was. Then it, it, it's journalism. But now it seems, uh, I guess you could say time has caught up with, uh, with it, where these shifts in tones don't seem to be as, uh, you know, they're not as alien as, as, uh, to audiences as they might have been back then. And, right. Uh, well, we,
5: also, I mean, movies now, I mean, that was a three-hour movie with an intermission. Right. And, um, you know, that was like, oh, my gosh, three hours? Well, look how many movies come out now that are three hours. And we uh, don't even get an intermission. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, Ms. Cartwright, I want to I wanna thank you for taking this time out, talking about everything, and we didn't even get to scratch the surface on uh, more more titles on your resume. Uh, but I want to thank you for taking this time. out. It's been really wonderful talking to you. Please come back anytime you have anything coming out on Home Entertainment. Uh, we'd love to have you back.
5: Oh, that's so nice. Thank you yeah. very much.
0: No problem. And I will get you uh, Tom Rolfe's uh, email.
5: Uh, oh, that would be fabulous. Thank I'll you so it. much.
0: Well, you have a good evening.
5: Thank you. You too. Yeah. Bye-bye.
0: That was Veronica Cartwright, uh, actress in the uh, Right Stuff Talking about that film amongst other credits on her list. Uh, let's continue. Our final guest is no stranger to the Oscars. Not only is composer Bill Conti a multiple nominee and winner, but he served as musical director of the broadcast for nearly, nearly a dozen times. His career is a healthy mix of composing for film and television. In the 1980s, he was responsible for some of the most iconic themes of the decade, along with the Karate Kid movies. Conti composed the themes of both Falcon Crest and, and Dynasty. He developed long-standing working relationships with filmmakers like John G. Avildsen and Sylvester Stallone, dating back to his composing the iconic theme to Rocky. Like the Rocky score, his work on the right stuff transforms the film from being earthbound into something inspirational. For his amazing work, Bill Conti received a well-deserved Best Original Score Oscar. It is my pleasure to welcome Academy Award-winning composer Bill Conti to Backed by Midnight.
1: Thank you for that introduction. I'm going to only correct you to in one sense, because just how old can I possibly be? I've done the Academy Award show nineteen times. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Which is, <laughs> seems impossible for me yeah. to believe myself. Uh,
0: when when was uh, when was the last time you did that? Uh, uh, last year. Last you did last year. Yeah. So you taking this year? Are you taking this year off? I'm
1: taking this year off. I mean, you know, it's not that I take it off. Mm-hmm. It's that if they change producers, the producer gets to pick who we'd like to uh, work with. So, uh, right.
0: are you are you kind of happy that you're going to be at home to watch it this year? Or do you...
1: Well, you know, I I love to do uh, live music, and I, I must admit, I would do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the first time I began was in 1977. After mm-hmm. Rocky came out in seventy six, so it hasn't been nineteen years in a row, but it's been over yeah. the years. Uh,
0: well, and the other thing, I, I got. I'll ask this question: in um, what is, what is the edict from the producers? Because you're you know, when you're doing when you're conducting the orchestra, on starting up the band to tell the the person who's just one to start wrapping it up.
1: Well, don't forget, at the famous uh, uh, nominee's luncheon, the producer will say, you all have 45 seconds. Mm
6: -hmm. And
1: then you also have these lights on the cameras that go from uh, green to yellow to red. We're warning you. We warn you now. We warn you then. 45 seconds. And then if we have to, we'll play you off with the music. Now, they, they know that, and, and the big stars, of course, do not get played off with the music. But mm-hmm. if you just happen to be a sound person or an editor person, you will be played off with the music. If the producer of the show gets nervous, right. and he's sitting in the truck, and when he gets nervous, he tells the director, get rid of that guy, and then the director says, Bill, play him off. Okay. and of the 19 times that i have been in the in the uh um hall during the show and i've been nominated three times the only time i sat in the audience with my wife just like a regular person i won for the right stuff
0: oh, okay well and um so, um before we get to to that stuff i want i want to ask you how did you get into composing music what what drew you into that
1: well, I came from a musical family. My grandfather was a musician. My father was a musician, and I uh, studied it all my life. And um, early on, I knew the dramatic music, and in my case, uh, Italian opera was the kind of music that moved me. It was uh, dramatic stuff, and I always wanted to do that. Um, and the only place to really do dramatic music... And make a living I mean, you can write operas um today, you certainly can, but if you wanted to be a composer in the baroque sense and uh, right. you want to get paid and there you are writing music, then film and television just seems to be a natural
0: Mm-hmm. and um well i I gotta ask because it along with the right stuff it's probably your most iconic uh thing you're associated with, and that is the uh, the rocky score, and which you know people may not remember this, but the first Rocky was a real low budget, uh almost like an independent film.
1: Yes, it was and it cost under a million dollars. The final bills were nine hundred and some odd thousand dollars.
0: So And so, so that's what I'm saying. So I'm I'm guessing you did not have the big orchestral score that one is associated with Rocky.
1: Well, it was a twenty five thousand dollar package deal. Now what that means is that they would give the the composer and he would have to pay for the musicians, the copying, the uh, studio, the tapes, all of that, and he would only get what was left. Uh, And in those days, um, the $25,000 to do the score all in was never
6: Mm -hmm.
1: either enough money or or, or certainly not a lot of money. But in one three-hour session, uh, I did the score.
0: And what was uh, so? I'll have to ask, what was the inspiration for that? For that score, where, where did that the the, the, the horns and, and that? Well, early
1: on, when John Avelson and I uh, were meeting about it, he would put on uh, uh, the slow motion footage of uh, fights. We had, we were not people who had been to many fights, but we were looking at these pictures. And in slow motion, drinking wine, and he had the Eroica Symphony of Beethoven playing behind it. And he says, oh, I, I, something like this, because it's it's a classic story. It's a, all of that. And I says, well, you know, the budget will not permit us to do anything like the Eroica Symphony of Beethoven. but And, by the way, John, we're in the streets of Philadelphia, so if I can maintain a classic Timeless feel to it in some way, and and remember, we're in the streets of Philadelphia. Then I, I will try to do that.
0: And uh, and then where who came up with the? I mean, so that's the score. But then who said, uh, we actually have a song here? And no,
1: no, her? no. We didn't have a song there. He said, uh, I I shot about five miles of film, of uh, slide training, and I'd like you to put together. About a minute's worth of music, so I can um, cut the film to it. Because it's, sometimes it's easier in a montage to have a piece of music that you would uh, cut to, just for the rhythm of it all. Right. So I gave him a minute, and then uh, and I used the themes, of course, that I had been using. Uh, and then he says, "Well, you know, I need another 30 seconds because I got more film. I mean, this." But it was intended to be a minute. Then it was a minute and a half. And so we kind of inched our way in 30-second increments all the way up to three minutes. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we had this piece that uh, he's jumping around, and it's almost like he's going to fly now. He says, can't we say anything here? And, I, and there were two lyricists that were on the project. And I said, yes, we could bring in the lyricists, and they because there were other songs in the, in the movie. And uh, they put lyrics to it, and... Uh, so it it backed its way into being a song. No one sat down to write a song
0: right. If you could join us we 're talking to Oscar winning composer Bill Conti uh're talking about a lot of things uh, on the occasion of looking back at the right stuff twenty five years ago nominated for best picture right now we 're talking a little bit about Rocky, his other uh iconic score uh, well, I gotta ask postscript to that, so what 's it like So you know there 's that experience, low budget, not enough money and not the big orchestral score and so forth, but then you know thirty years later, rocky balboa and you come on to that, so what's it like to i guess have uh, i guess you could say a bigger budget and older? well I, you know it
1: began right early on, like with with uh, Rocky two, mm-hmm.
0: as soon as
1: the poverty of Rocky One was over, and then mm-hmm. we instantly became. Uh, different people than who we were the day before and we had a budget on Rocky II that didn't have anything to do with Rocky I and and even Stallone was wearing camel hair coats and all of a sudden Rocky had a limousine and Rocky was this. I had an orchestra that was like uh, bigger than a symphony orchestra and when we get down to Rocky Balboa some 30 years later and we attempt to do something new and something different, even with the music. We we just went in a different direction. And you went to the first little screening. Now, it wasn't a preview. It wasn't done. But it was cut together and it had different music in it. And the only thing the cards and letters said was, where's the music?
6: Hmm.
1: We want the old music. So, so it was one of those things that we threw away everything that we worked on for months before and just... Went back to the old music and, and hung it together again, and uh, went in there with a million players and uh, did our best.
0: Right. Well, and then I got to ask uh, before we get to the to the right stuff, and we will get to that. I got to ask about some of your work on television because, uh, let's face it, the the themes in the shows uh, Falcon Crest and Dynasty are, you know, they helped define the, the 1980s.
1: Well, it was Cagney and Lacey, Lifestyle, Rich and Famous. There was yeah. like a, a lot of different things. Uh, I was pretty hot in those days and had nine uh, television themes on at the same time. Uh, it's a different medium, you know. And in and in those days, as now, I guess, before you know what a show is, mm-hmm. uh, the music is the very first thing that you'll hear about it. So it certainly gives you some indication of what the show could be about, or what the authors intended it to be. On Dynasty, I remember the directive that was, you know, this is about rich, elegant people, and we want something that sounds that way. Now you take a guess, I mean, you don't know what does that mean, right. so I, I came up with that, and they happened to like that, and they were right, in the first 30 seconds, and, and by the way, they, we used to have main titles of over a minute, They could be a minute and a half, Right. Today, you turn on television, and in ten seconds you're into the show. Um, no, no so, some are longer, but I'm, I'm just saying we really had a minute to a minute and a half to to try to establish the atmosphere, and uh, that was the task. I mean, it's a, it's a short form, not the long form. The movie says once upon a time, and then it <laughs> spins the story out, but the TV show has to grab you instantaneously.
0: Right. Well, uh, if you just joining us, we're talking to Oscar-winning composer Bill Conti uh, about many things, many of his credits, but on the occasion of we're looking at The Right Stuff 25 years ago, nominated for Best Picture. So how did you, uh, I guess we'll get to The Right Stuff, so how how did you get the call to to be the composer for The Right Stuff? If my history, uh, my research is correct, is that you were kind of a, uh, you were brought in because I guess Mr. Kaufman was having uh, creative differences with an earlier composer.
1: Yes, I understood the same thing, and, and, and the producers, don't forget, were Chartoff and Winkler,
6: right.
0: who who
1: were the compos- uh, producers of the Rocky series, among other things. and But Philip had his choice of composer, as every director uh, does and should, and yes, I don't remember who it was, but they had creative differences, and so therefore the producers got to uh, voice an opinion. And uh, they wanted me to go in. And, of course, time was always of the element. I remember about to leave on a vacation with my family when the phone rang and the agent said, uh, y- you have to go up to San Francisco uh, because they've they've uh, released the other composer and you're going to do the right stuff. And it, so that was kind of the beginning.
0: Hmm. And so what, in a sense, you have a truncated schedule here. What was uh, it Was it the back and forth, or did uh, Mr. Kaufman tell you, you know, what he was looking for? Because uh, as I was watching the film the other night uh, and paying attention to the score, uh, the score is amazing. But I also it, it dawned on me that the score it's it's not for three hours of film. The score is not ladled over everything. It actually good. No, there was there things. was
1: a uh, it's. Uh, uh, a bit awkward to explain because Philip wanted, did not want uh, me on the project or that was I think the first thing he said to me but I don't think he and he did not mean it personally what he meant in full explanation was that he felt he was telling a very personal story of these lives Mm
6: -hmm.
1: and he did not want the scope that that kind of a score would bring to his movie Mm -hmm. now i appreciated his point of view of course i mean he is the director but um i just didn't see it his way he if he had it his way he could have done it with less musicians than i did which was i looked at the space program of the united states of america and rockets taking off and i just did not feel that personal guitar lonely moment that that he had explained to me so we were not on the same page
6: mm-hmm.
1: and and i proceeded to do as i felt and we did it at a distance because within 2 weeks of my being on the project i was in the studio
6: mm-hmm. it
1: was it might have been a 3 hour movie but uh, after two weeks of being on the project, meaning I flew to San Francisco and we take the notes and we discuss where we think music should be and of what nature, I went back to Los Angeles and began uh, creating the music, and two weeks later we began recording it, so mm. uh, wow. there's not a lot of collaboration here.
0: Is there a particular cue or sequence where you look at and you're like, okay, that's what uh that's what i had in that's what i intended for my music to do when played with this film
1: well i of course the 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 one that uh that i like of the astronauts walking forward in that macho high right. noon moment uh not that that Philip didn't create a, a wonderful movie i mean he's a, he's mm-hmm. an artist and, and it was so many moments in the movie that, that he had pulled off as a filmmaker. Uh, for me, the Jaeger at the end, coming out of the...
0: Jaeger's uh, triumph.
1: Jaeger's the, the triumph after the the plane went down and he came back, was uh, um, a moment. See, I felt that, that the emotion was needed. Now, mm-hmm. what that means is If I felt the emotion in the film, that meant that's what I think I want to do. If you're restricted in saying, no, we don't want any display of emotion, then that was what you would do. Uh, There was no time for the the fineness of of, of that kind of talk. I just went home and emotionally felt, oh, my God, this is what I feel about this and did it. Mm Mm-hmm. That, and, and much of the music did not get in the movie. Right. And I think that was because of of the director's feeling that he didn't want a lot of music and he didn't want it of that nature. So in spite of all of that, the movie still came out all right. How many nominations did it receive?
0: I think, was it seven or eight? Uh, it's quite a bit. Uh, it yeah, it,
1: it might have even been more. And, yeah. and the ultimate, uh, I, I, I never understand how, this can happen, uh, there might have been 10 nominations and Philip did not receive one, which is absolutely ludicrous to think that that mm-hmm. film could have been made to that degree of, of quality without the hand of the director. I mean, right. how do you do that? Well, it's happened in the past, too. I've noticed, you know, from being at the Academy Awards show, you see these things with seven or eight, and he says, but the director didn't get nominated. How does that? I don't, I'll never understand that.
0: But well, I think uh this year's interesting where it's all it's five for five. The five films get have the five directors nominated. Yeah, that, and, that, uh, and that's rare. Yeah, that is rare. Well and, and I'm curious about some of the instrumentation in the uh score. Uh and I don't and you can correct me whether this is part of your music or part of music that Kaufman uh Mr. Kaufman uh used from other places and then along with the orchestral but there's also some uh Use of electronic instrumentation uh, during all
1: that was most of the electronic stuff. And by the way, the Mm -hmm. the sound of the rockets and stuff like that was done electronically under my direction with Michael Boddicker, Michael Lang, other I mean synthesizers of of note. We went into the we began doing the sound effects to the movie two weeks after I was on the project. Mm
6: -hmm.
1: Now. Every little moment? No, we were a part of every moment in terms of the synthesizer work and creating the effects and the, the noises next to the rocket. And now when he walks around the, uh, the the plane for the first time, all of that stuff is uh, uh, created with uh, uh, electronics, which came under my ear.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and uh, I I'd, uh, I talked to Tom, Tom Rolf earlier about this, and then, uh, you know, this is you know, 25 years ago. There's no internet, blogging sites. There's no <laughs> e, you know, e entertainment channel. So, uh, how did you find out you were nominated? I, I I I assume this was not one of those, you know, wake up at you know dawn to see the nominations. I mean that that wasn't going on yet. Oh so, well,
1: no, 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 no. I wouldn't have done that anyway. But but <laughs> it was probably a call from my agent.
6: <laughs> and what because you,
1: what? if if it, if, they, if they tell it tell the story at five o'clock. Then everybody knows it by 8 o'clock, and then your right. phone rings, and and uh, the people that really know the earliest, uh, hmm. the, all the people involved, like the agents, certainly want to know if any of their clients. Uh, right. So I, I knew. Uh, it, was ex- it was very exciting, of course.
0: Right. And you had, to, like I said, you'd been nominated before, obviously, with Rocky. And, so this and your, For Your Eyes Only. For and the For gym. Your Eyes oh, Only. Yeah. And this was your third time to the the show, but as you said, this was your only time that you were going to be in the audience. And so well, far- it's,
1: yeah, it's interesting, because I think it, that year, we were seated next to Mr. and Mrs. Johnny Williams, uh, Oh wow. Larry Rosenthal, I forget the other nominees that were there, but now Johnny has conducted the uh, uh, Academy Awards show, and I can remember us reminiscing and saying, oh, I'd much rather be working here than sitting here in the audience, and <laughs> All that little chit chat that you do as friends, until your category uh, arises, <laughs> then you stare straight ahead and you hate him. <laughs> I mean, you don't hate him, but you don't sort of you certainly want to win in that moment. Because then the moment passes, and then you're still there.
0: Right. <laughs> well, I, I got to ask, going back to that Rocky, that, that, that your first Academy Awards in '77. I'm, I'm that's the year you're nominated for the Rocky score. Uh, so. <laughs> Was that kind of an awkward moment? I mean, you're conducting the show, and, uh, and Barbara
1: Streisand won for uh, the song from Evergreen.
0: Evergreen. So you, so do you kind of like you almost have to immediately shake off the loss and get back to? Uh, <laughs>
1: oh, oh, beyond that, I mean, the, uh, the the director in your ear is saying that you keep this orchestra together because they'll just kill you tomorrow if you make any any mistakes now. Uh yeah, I mean, look, win. there's no, nothing quite like winning, but uh it's tough to lose, but um uh, that's life, you know.
0: <laughs> well, now, you know, 25 years later and you know, you're removed from any of the creative drama that was in 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 this less than ideal situation on the right stuff. What do you think uh when you see the film or you listen back to the
6: to those
1: cues? Huge- well, I I, I obviously one thing for sure it was it was such a well made film and don't i don't want to get the impression that there was uh, any kind of fighting or or any right. animosity because he's a w- wonderful person, Philip Kaufman, and a wonderful director, and there was no time in other words, this was supposed to be in the theaters. He said his wishes, therefore he was kind of a little bit taken aback because he did not want the kind of score that I was about to give him,
6: mm-hmm.
1: and, but he had failed in his, and, and I have nothing but good things to say with him. I think that it, the film speaks for itself. He made a wonderful film. I did my best with the music. I don't know whether he ever come around to liking it or not. Uh, it, it, it's stamped in time. That, that's what it was. I mean, right. no, no evilness. It was wonderful, as a matter of fact. It was just too fast. <laughs>